0: Today on Government Matters, 25 million people around the globe work under forced labor conditions. We talk with two directors at Customs and Border Protection that are stopping the products they manufacture from entering the U.S. market. And calls to modernize the U.S.'s aging nuclear triad are growing stronger. One expert shares what needs updating before those legacy systems hit retirement age. Government Matters starts right now.
1: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges.
0: This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Forced labor is considered modern-day slavery, and it affects about 25 million people around the globe. One team at Customs and Border Protection, or CBP, is working to stop goods made in, the, in those conditions from entering the American market. Anna Inahosa is executive director for the Trade Remedy Law Enforcement Directorate at Customs and Border Protection. Eric Choi is deputy executive director for the CBP program. Eric and Anna are the winners of the 2021 People's Choice Award for the Service to America medals given by the Partnership for Public Service. Welcome to both of you.
2: Thank you, Mimi.
0: Anna, I mentioned that this is a huge problem. You know, 25 million people is the estimate. Where around the world is this problem the worst?
2: Well, Mimi, um, forced labor is a problem all over the world, but currently uh, the International Labor Organization assesses that the, the vast majority of people that uh, um, are under forced labor conditions are in East Asia. And how are they finding themselves in these
0: situations? Is this mostly human trafficking?
2: Well, I think the, 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 um, the way that people are finding themselves in, in forced labor situation varies depending on the different countries. Um, in, uh, in Asia, it, it is a situation where there are a lot of countries that are very poor and they have a lot of available workers that are looking to, to get jobs. And so they travel to neighboring countries that have industry uh, looking for workers. And so there's a big problem with migrant workers from, from poor countries going to, to maybe more industrialized uh, countries. And uh, the, the human rights uh, issues and the labor conditions aren't always uh, as well protected. So Eric, your job is
0: not to end slave labor it's to stop the products made by them from coming into the United States. Tell me about the process.
3: Sure, so certainly you're right. The, um, so the, the, the authorities for CBP is, is against the goods um, that are produced with forced labor. And so- Although
0: it would be nice to stop slave labor yeah. <laughs> around the world.
3: For sure, absolutely. Um, and how the, how the agency goes about that is it is, an, it is an allegation-driven process. So we do work closely with um, civil society, with the interagency, also with investigative media, Uh, and just allegations that come in through to the agency with uh, against uh, potential goods that were made potentially with forced labor. Uh, And so once we uh, once we look at that allegation and see that that is a good potentially a good allegation to look into, uh, then we open an investigation and then as as an outcome for the investigation, um, if it if it is proven with within a reasonable uh, doubt that um, that force saver is used in, in the in making those goods then uh, the the agency will move forward with uh, enforcement action on those goods
0: well so let's go through the issue of stevia because that was something that you guys worked on tell us give us the whole process what happened with that
2: um, stevia was was um was a, a slightly different situation it is an older case but um, what we found in that case was that a U.S. importer was, um, was bringing in the stevia products from uh, a facility in China. And, and when, we, when we looked into it further, it turned out that facility was actually a prison. And so this was prison labor that was being utilized. Uh, they, they basically, the Chinese government built a, uh, a company or a production facility inside the prison to be able to use that prison labor to produce the stevia that was then being imported into the United States.
0: And then what do you do once you realize this is prison labor?
2: So our uh, statute, um, which is uh, covered under 19 U.S.C. 1307, Uh, specifically says that we are to prohibit the importation of any goods that are produced in whole or in part with forced labor and forced labor is either convict labor prison labor forced child labor or any other kind of indentured uh, labor and so our authorities as a customs administration are to ensure that any goods and people but in this case goods that are coming in, in through our borders and into the United States are doing so in compliance with all our laws and regulations and so these products are not eligible to come in if they're produced with with uh, forced labor. So we take steps to use our customs authority to inspect goods, detain goods, and prevent goods that are not supposed to come in to the United States from coming into the United States. So you'll stop
0: them at the border, you'll confiscate them, and then what do you do with them?
2: Do you, do you throw them away? Do you send them back? Good question. So um, when when goods are it depends on which status uh, what we've determined on uh, the, the particular case if we've reached the level of reasonable suspicion then we've issued what is called a withhold release order and basically that informs our ports of entry that they're to detain those goods um, importers of those goods have the ability have due process and have the ability to submit evidence that that our belief is incorrect and here's the evidence and so if that's the case during the period of detention there we we would review that and release the goods if it's not the case then they're required to export those goods and so we would take steps to exclude the goods um, and then they either ex, uh, export them or after a period of time we would deem them abandoned and we would take steps to destroy them since they're considered prohibited goods we would not let them into the country or use them for something else does,
0: Eric, does the American company that's involved get fined? Is there some um, punitive um, process that goes on?
3: Sure, I mean, so that, that is an additional uh, enforcement um, authority that the uh, the agency does have. So um, initially the withhold release order that's issued by the agency is, is on the goods that are imported in. Uh, and so as in the continuing investigation or maybe engagement that we, um, look into the matters surrounding that case in itself where we find that potentially that the importer may be liable, liable for uh, their involvement in knowingly importing these goods into the country, then potentially civil penalties are, are on the table.
0: All right. Well, we're going to take a quick pause here and we'll come back and continue. Sure. Coming next, we speak more with Anna and Eric about the impact of their work towards solving the global human trafficking phenomenon. We'll be right back. Human trafficking is a global phenomenon and some of them end up working in forced labor conditions. My guests work to stop those products from being sold in the US. Here with us are Anna Inejosa, Executive Director, and Eric Choi, Deputy Executive Director from Customs and Border Protection. Eric, how does this how does your work affect the American consumer, the American economy? Does this make products more expensive?
3: Sure. Well absolutely. I mean from uh, from the goods that are made with forced, forced labor being imported to the U.S. and being sold to the American consumer, the goods are cheaper, right? And so it allows those foreign producers and manufacturers to sell those those products cheaper uh, with lower costs for them uh, with regards to the, how much they spend on labor. And and so it is an unfair practice, and, and how it affects the American consumer is that, first of all, it makes the American consumer an, an inadvertent consumer of goods that are produced with, with forced labor and an inadvertent supporter of, of those goods. And so... Um, by the agency 's enforcement as well as the the, um, the laws that are in place to protect the American consumer that, that is our goal to make sure that uh, that we are protecting the American consumer from consuming these goods.
0: is there something you 'd like the American public to know about this?
3: Sure, absolutely um, so <clears throat> one of the things as the, since the agency has really stepped up its, its efforts uh, to enforce forced labor we 've seen significant movement within uh, not only domestically with companies here uh, and their products and their goods and the way that they market and that they advertise their, responsib- their responsible and due diligence uh, programs for, for the goods that they're selling. Uh, we've seen those changes where now um, companies are adding due diligence uh, and corporate social responsibility uh, statements to their websites, to their products and on their goods. and and, those, and, and that's what consumers should be looking for when they're, when they're shopping for their products.
0: And I can imagine American companies would not want that being so, something that they're known for. Absolutely. Anna, can you talk about kind of your office and what problems or challenges you might have you might be facing when you're uh, going after these companies?
2: Sure. I mean, I think that, that um, it would be important to note that up until 2016, Um, The current statute that we use to to enforce against uh, goods that are produced with forced labor used to have a clause in it that kind of created a loophole for enforcement. And so there wasn't really a lot of enforcement prior to 2016. In 2016, Congress eliminated that loophole, and since then, we've been – CBP has slowly been developing this program. So uh, over the last two years, we've really uh, tried to to get ourselves very – organized. Congress has given us additional uh, appro- appropriations, so we have a, few, a, a more staff. This year, in fact, we were able to double our investigative uh, branches. So we used to have one branch that was focused on investigations, and thanks to, again, congressional appropriations, we were able to double our staff. So um, it, it is very complex. The, the actual forced labor is happening in countries very far away, and so we really rely on a lot of um, a lot of different sources to be able to, to corroborate, validate that, that the allegations that we receive are accurate. Certainly the pandemic has, pay, has played a, a big challenge uh, on our ability to travel to some of these countries and be able to engage with some of the folks that could give us some additional information. So we've really had to be creative and innovative in, in being able to, to get that information.
0: Do you feel like you do have the resources that you need to do this kind of work and to do to do more. I mean, we we definitely want you to be doing this, uh, having more of an impact.
2: Well, I think that um, it is a, uh, an, an evolution, and so we've we've been uh, methodically evolving the program. Um, we can't go zero to one hundred in it, you know overnight, but I think we've learned a lot as we've been as we've been. Uh, Growing the program and the complexities of every new industry that we identify issues on. Um, really give us new new challenges to have to to work through, new stakeholders to have to deal with. And so um, I think that, that we're, we're grateful for the resources that we've received. And certainly there are opportunities for other areas that we can further expand our program in, you know, should the resources be available.
0: I wonder if you're seeing an actual impact to the people overseas, to those workers that are working under slave conditions. Or is this just kind of something that's making us feel good that we're doing, you know, we're doing our part for human
2: rights? Well, I would say, you know, we recently had um, a a case that we worked on um, with regards to rubber gloves in Malaysia. And um, we'd had a previous case in Malaysia in in 2019 going into 2020 and certainly Malaysia took took note that we were having enforcement actions on this smaller rubber glove company but this this large company that top glove, which was one of the largest rubber glove manufacturers in the world, um, was seemed untouchable or seemed like you know they, they they would certainly not be accused of forced labor but in fact, they were. And so when we investigated it and substantiated the claims, we stopped importations of their goods from coming into the United States, and that was a big wake-up call to, you know, that industry, certainly to Malaysia. And the Malaysian government actually has taken steps to make changes to their laws. And companies, even other than uh, Topglove, have taken steps to fix the forced labor conditions in their manufacturing processes uh, to avoid any enforcement action from the United States. We also have, uh, I think, as Eric mentioned, and maybe you can talk a little bit about that, Eric, about our engagement and how we're raising awareness with other countries.
3: Sure, and I think just other other effects that are occurring just based upon our actions, as well as the U.S. government's stance on forced labor, is that other countries, other um, other geographical regions are having these conversations with regards to forced labor and how they should be approaching these for, uh, the issue of forced labor. Because it's not only the U.S. that these goods are coming to, but they're also going globally around the world. And so, whether it's the U.K., EU, the, our North American partners, they're all have have now are raising the concern with regards to the goods that are produced for forced labor, and it's and it's having an impact globally as well as uh, most importantly, you know, the, the laborers that are subject to the, the, the forced labor are getting reimbursed, their, their living conditions are being improved, and, and that's, that's the most rewarding aspect of, of our work that And that's
0: so, so good to see. Eric, Anna. thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you for your work, and congratulations on your award. Uh,
3: thank you very thank much, Thank you,
2: Mimi. thank you, Mimi, for having us.
0: Coming next. The aging nuclear triad puts deterrence at risk. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the American public has to say about modernizing those weapons. We'll be right back. calls to modernize the U.S.'s aging nuclear triad are growing stronger. The legacy systems will reach retirement age in about the next decade. Mark Gunzinger is a director at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. He's former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense. Mark, welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell us what the current state of the nuclear triad is and why does it need to be modernized and updated? Where are the problems?
1: Well, the current triad, which, of course, uh, consists of 14 Ohio-class ballistic missile submarines, about 60 nuclear-capable bombers, and then we also have uh, 400 uh, ICBMs called Minuteman 3. They're currently on alert. Most of those systems were designed in the 1970s and 1980s. And the B-52s, airplane I once flew, was uh, actually rolled out uh, in the the early 60s. So they're aging, and they're all in need of modernization. Just one quick snippet, if I could, the Minuteman III ICBM, which is going to be replaced by the GBSE, the Ground-Based Strategic Deterrent, new missiles and new silos and so forth, uh, uh, were delivered in the uh, Nixon and the Carter administrations. But,
0: but why do they need to? I understand that they're yes. old, but why do they need to be updated? Don't they still work? I mean, a nuke is a nuke.
1: That's an excellent question. That's the uh, uh, exact reason why they need to be monetized, because they are not going to work in you know, the not so uh, distant future. Uh, they have problems with uh, security, survivability, being able to penetrate the kinds of advanced defenses that Russia and China have now fielded and uh, just maintaining these uh, uh, old systems are, are difficult. The Minuteman 3 was designed for a lifespan of 10 years. You now in, in just about any state in the United States they'd qualify for antique license plates if there are cars. Anyone who's ever restored an antique car know how difficult it is and costly it is to restore them. And even after you restore them you're still left with an antique car. So refurbishing the Minuteman 3 once again is not going to give our warfighters the capabilities they need to deter nuclear threats. Your
0: organization conducted a survey about the nuclear deterrent. Give us an overview of what you found
1: out. Yes, so we commissioned a poll to ask likely voters, uh, evenly balanced, Republicans and and Democratic, uh, on their feelings regarding uh, our defense investments and the nuclear triad modernization in particular. So we conducted this in the most holistic, unbiased way possible. Uh, The results are online and the exact questions we ask are all there, nothing hidden whatsoever. Uh, The first thing that came out was the top threats to keep Americans up at night are cyber attacks against our homeland and the threat of nuclear attacks from uh, terrorist groups or or, a rogue state. In other words, things that are occurring every day, the cyber attacks and things that could threaten the existence of our nation, nuclear attacks. Second, the poll results uh, suggested that there's broad support for investing in defense, despite what's occurred in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, over the past few years. And and drilling down, they agreed that modernizing the nuclear deterrence system is critical to our nation's security and should be one of DOD's top priorities. 91% of respondents, again, both parties, agreed that that should be a priority.
0: I bet you were surprised that that many Americans agreed on something.
1: Yes, that's exactly correct. We were uh, very surprised. It was actually uh, eye-popping. And Again, uh, the full results and the exact questions that were asked are uh, on our website.
0: Well, Mark, how much is this going to cost? Because I'm I'm assuming this is going to be very expensive to do this.
1: Yes, not as expensive as some might think. Now, the um, uh, Air Force and DoD are investing in the B-21 stealth bomber for example and about five to six percent of its development costs are going to make it nuclear capable and of course still have uh, conventional capabilities which is really why we're buying the bomber to sustain our nuclear triad plus to give our ability our nation the ability to strike conventionally anywhere in the face of the earth the uh minuteman three which is going to be replaced by the gbsd gbsd will cost about 110 billion dollars which seems like a large number but if you stop to think, that's about 3.7% of DED's budget. Actually, it's 3.7% of DOD's budget to modernize the entire triad, to recapitalize it, to re- uh, upgrade and modernize our Ohio-class submarines, or Columbia-class submarines, and invest in the GBSD and a new nuclear-capable standoff missile for our, our B-52s.
0: Well, there's a nuclear posture review underway, so we'll be watching for that, and yes. maybe we can talk some more then. Mark, thanks so much for being on the program. You bet, thank you. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's at govmatters.tv. And find us on social media. Su- subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us on Facebook, We're on Twitter at TV and connect with us on LinkedIn at Government Matters Media. Send us your comments about the program. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24.7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching, I'm Mimi Gargis.